0: turn to Jeremiah 21, by which of course I mean Jeremiah 15. We're going to touch down briefly in Jeremiah 15 on our way to chapter 21 and Lord willing chapter 22 tonight. Jeremiah 21, when we get there, describes events that happen 588, 587, 586 BC or thereabouts. And, and, And it's sort of refreshing to know that, because a lot of weeks we gather here on Wednesday night, we open to Jeremiah, and we say, well, we don't really know exactly when in Jeremiah's ministry he preached this sermon. We don't know exactly chronologically where to put this. There's this theory and there's that theory. We're not altogether sure. This is one of the times where we're sure. This is one of the chapters that we can pin down. But before we get there and and, and get to what you know, what Jeremiah says at that time and how we know that it is that time, a little bit of backdrop, a little bit of, of, of foundation. Last week when we left off, Jeremiah was lamenting. I didn't have you turn there because that much is relatively recent. He was lamenting because on the one hand, God, if I, if I don't preach the words you give me, your word burns within me. On the other hand, if I do preach the words that you give me, people hate me. If the fire don't get me, the, if the thunder don't get me, the lightning will kind of a thing. He cries out to the Lord, why, Lord? It's not fair, Lord. Make it stop, Lord. And in describing his lament, I used the term pity party, which was spontaneous and, and not in my notes. and it, it, It's accurate and, and unfortunate both at the same time. Accurate because he was feeling sorry for himself. And he was feeling sorry for himself after God explicitly told him, hey, this is what your ministry is going to be like, chair. He was complaining that his ministry was turning out exactly the way that the Lord said it was going to. He wasn't depressed because his ministry wasn't fruitful. He was, he was bummed out because it was hard and because he was unpopular. And, and that's what was going through my mind when I just tossed out the word pity party spontaneously. He was feeling sorry for himself. He was fulfilling his ministry, he was prophesying, he just didn't have any friends. So, so the term is accurate in a sense, I mean that's, that's what I was thinking when I grabbed for it, but it was still an unfortunate choice of words on my part, because the connotation is, is negative, and it's negative in a really specific way. And, 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 and it could have come across as faulting Jeremiah for having feelings that let's face it are pretty understandable given what he was going through. You know, it, it it sounds like I'm I'm mocking Jeremiah for fleshing out at a time where any one of us I know that I would have done the same thing. I've gotten a whole lot more carnal with a whole lot less cause than Jeremiah had. Because at the end of the day, we're emotional beings, right? We're made in God's image, and God certainly has feelings. We see God joy and we see him peaceful. We see God's anger. We see God's sorrow. I think the only feeling that God can't have is surprise. (laughs) The challenge that we have, we, us, we, Jeremiah, we, humans, is what we do with those feelings that are part of our makeup. Because we have a choice. We can observe them and we can let them inform us or we can follow them and let them enslave us. And Jeremiah, to his credit, at the end of the chapter, he's he's feeling what he's feeling, and he's expressing it, which is better than bottling it up. He's feeling and expressing what I think all of us would be in his, his place. He owns it, he expresses it, and then, and this is what we talked about at the end of last week, then he moves on. And it's the last time that we hear Jeremiah complain to God that way. Feelings are a part of who we are. Useful servants, horrible masters. What does this have to do with tonight? What does this have to do with chapter 21 or chapter 15? Perspective. Perspective. Jeremiah was called to ministry in 627 B.C. That's another date we know for sure, because in chapter 1 the Holy Spirit gives it to us. If the events of chapter 20 happen anywhere proximate to chapter 21 he's been prophesying for 40 years at this point. 40 years of ministry, 40 years of speaking hard things that fell upon deaf ears, 40 years of exhorting people with what he knows to be true and getting no response. And knowing that the the outworking of that lack of response, God's response to their lack of response, will be judgment, will be horrific destruction. Forty years of that, with the mocking of the people around him growing louder and louder by the year. <coughs> more and more vicious, more and more constant, more and more widespread. I, I, I've gone, like I said, I've gone off on God over much smaller things that happen over a much shorter period of time. But along the way, look at verse 11 of chapter 15, if you've made it there. Along the way, God gives him words of encouragement here and there, and chapter 15 is an example of that. Chapter 15, verse 11, the Lord said, Surely it will be well with your remnant. He's speaking specifically to Jeremiah now. Surely I'll cause the enemy to intercede with you, Jeremiah, in the time of adversity and in the time of affliction. This is, this is God responding to one of Jeremiah's previous laments, one of his earlier complaints. And God, in response, promises Jeremiah two things. He promises him the strength to endure, and he promises to protect him, to preserve him, until a time, until a day when his enemies, not his enemies in Babylon, his enemies in Judah, his, his fellow Jews, repent and come to him and ask for help. Turn to chapter 21. Tonight we see the fulfillment of that prophecy. Chapter 21, verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, when King Zedekiah sent to him Pasher the son of Melchiah and Zephaniah the priest, saying, Please inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon makes war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all of his wonderful works that the king, Nebuchadnezzar, may go away from us. Go ahead and throw that slide up on the screen if you would, Ben, and and maybe we could put that up for the the folks at home as well. Zedekiah is the last king of Judah. And and if you want to cross-reference the history, 2 Kings 24, 2 Chronicles 36 is where you want to go. But really short summary this evening. In 612 B.C., the Babylonians destroyed Nineveh. Destruction that God had, had ordained in the days of Jonah. They repented. God stayed his hand for a season, but they unrepented. And, and so 612 of the Babylonians are used as God's instrument of judgment against the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire, for all intents and purposes, is no more. 609 B.C., Josiah dies. Josiah was the last good king of Judah. He undertook a really ill-advised military campaign against Egypt. He dies in the battlefield, at which point Jehoahaz, his son, becomes king. Lasts three months and is replaced, still 609 BC, by Jehoiakim. 605 so just a few years later, the Babylonians defeat Egypt at the Battle of Carchemish and establish themselves as the dominant power in the region. And, and as, as, as a next step, they capture Jerusalem and begin to exercise influence over Judah. This is the first wave of deportation. Remember, there's three waves in, in which uh, those of Judah are carried into exile. First wave happens in 605 BC. But Babylon does what Babylon is doing, setting up puppet governments and and sort of ruling these these newly conquered regions remotely. Well, 602-601-ish, Jehoiakim rallies, and he decides to push back against Babylon. It doesn't end well for him. He ends up dead in 597 BC. His son, Jehoiachin, rules for a hundred days. And at, at the end of that, his, he, he's found insufficient, and, and so there's a second wave of deportation, which includes Jehoiachin and also includes Ezekiel. That's 597 BC. At which point Nebuchadnezzar puts his handpicked guy on the throne, Zedekiah. Zedekiah's also in the, in the line of David. He's in fact another son of Josiah, Brother of Jehoahaz, brother of Jehoiakim, who preceded him. Probably Nebuchadnezzar picks him because he's flaky, not a strong personality. His, his, His primary quality is that he's wishy washy. And Nebuchadnezzar puts him on the throne and he immediately swears allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar. But meanwhile, there's a nationalist movement growing in Judah. And he comes close to rebelling. We're going to read about that in just a few chapters. Chapter 27 and 28 of Jeremiah talk about that because Jeremiah is in no kind of chronological order. But then he settles down again until 588 or so. And it's 588, he starts to feel rambunctious again, he starts to feel his oats, and he thinks maybe Egypt's new king, the new pharaoh in town, will be strong enough that Judah and Egypt together can push back against Babylon, throw off their Babylonian oppressors. 588, Nebuchadnezzar says, uh, no, I don't think so. He marches his army into Judah, blockade supply lines, To Jerusalem and begins one by one conquering all of the surrounding towns. This is before he actually lays siege to Jerusalem proper, but he signals that he's done putting up with any kind of nonsense. And it's somewhere in that 588 to 586 window that this conversation takes place, Jeremiah 21. Where the same people who have been mocking Jeremiah send for him, saying, what shall we do? Can you ask God to, to maybe do something about Nebuchadnezzar? And, and if you track down the identity of, of those folks, we won't go through the, the effort tonight. These are senior, senior people that Zedekiah says to Jeremiah. They're, they're one, one rank below the high priest who reach out. They reach out to Jeremiah. They know that he's been warning about an attack from the north for forever. So that validates his credentials as a prophet. It's happened. It's here. So you're a prophet. You and God talk. Would you ask God to deliver us the way that he has before, the way that he did in the Exodus, the way that he did with the Moabites and the Ammonites, the way that he did with under Hezekiah with the Assyrians? We read about that not long ago in Isaiah 37, right? The Lord's answer, verse 3, is no. Jeremiah said to them, Thus you shall say to Zedekiah, Take this message to your boss. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands, with which you fight against the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans who besiege you outside the walls, and I will assemble them in the midst of the city. I'm not on your side, God says. The Babylonian army is my weapon. The Babylonians, they're my instrument of judgment against you. I'm going to march them right into the middle of Jerusalem. Verse 5, I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm, even in anger and fury and great wrath. I will strike the inhabitants of the city, both man and beast, they shall die of a great pestilence. With a mighty hand and an with an outstretched, what is it? Mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Your love endures forever. It sounds better when that's in the context of the Exodus, right? That sounds better when that, that mighty hand and outstretched arm are on the side of God's people. And God chooses that idiom. On purpose. He's circling back to that expression, that, that idiom, that characterization of himself that once fought for them that's now fighting against them. Reference to pestilence in verse 6 that's also a callback. Both of those are reference to, to the Exodus, to the, to the plagues of Egypt. And God is saying, yeah, this, the God that was fighting for you then is fighting against you now which means the end game for Zedekiah and his leaders. Afterward, says the Lord, verse 7, I will deliver Zedekiah, king of Judah, his servants and the people and such as are left in the city from the pestilence and the sword and the famine, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their life, and he shall strike them with the edge of the sword. He shall not spare them or have pity or mercy. The fulfillment of that is... Uh, 2 Kings 25, verses 6 and 7. Zedekiah has his son slain in front of him and then has his eyes put out. And I mean, it's brutal. And it, and it gives rise to those who would say, oh, the Old Testament God is, is angry. Well, yes and no. God of the Old Testament and the New Testament and God who was God before the New Testament and who will be God after the New Testament is holy and cannot allow sin to persist indefinitely. But we need to understand this is not a fit of rage. This is not a peak. This is not a tantrum. This is God's settled disposition against sin. This is the outworking of his holiness after centuries of warning. After prophet after prophet explicitly exhorting Judah to turn from their ways. After the defeat of Israel, the northern kingdom, in 722, a century earlier, which God pointed at and said, Don't go that way. Don't let this happen to you. God said this was what will happen if you don't change your ways. Now that said, even in judgment, we know that God remembers mercy, right? Verse 8, the next thing that God gives Jeremiah to say, say this to the people. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. God says to the people, you've got a choice between life and death. Zedekiah, his leaders, not so much. They made their choice three steps back. But, but you have a choice. He who remains in the city shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. But he who goes out and defects to the Chaldeans who besiege you, those who surrender to the enemy, he shall live, and his life shall be as a prize to him. For I've set my face against this city for adversity and not for good, says the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. You've got a choice, God says to the people. Not to the leaders, but to the people. Your choice is you can fight and die, because the outcome is already ordained. The city is falling. You can fight or die, or you can surrender and live. And and we know from a lot of different sources, the, the, the exiles in Babylon enjoyed a reasonably comfortable existence. Those who refused to surrender had no existence. They were wiped out. They were dead. And just in case that doesn't make sense to Jeremiah's listeners, if they've missed or forgotten or ignored everything that led up to this, verse 11, God fills in some of the backstory. And concerning the house of the king of Judah, say, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of David. Thus says the Lord <clears throat> Execute judgment in the morning and deliver him who is plundered out of the hand of the oppressor, lest my fury go forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. <clears throat> Zedekiah is the last of the kings of Judah, right? So this is God looking backward. This is God saying, let's review. How did we get here? It wasn't without warning, God said in verse 11. I I, I warned you fairly explicitly what your choices were. Verse 12, behold, no, sorry. uh, I read verse 12. Execute judgment in the morning and deliver him who's plundered out of the hand of the oppressor lest my fury go forth like fire and burn, so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. That was the king's job description in verse 12. Administer justice, defend the oppressed, protect people from being exploited. Do those things, govern righteously and well, and we'll be fine. Fail to do those things. If you don't administer justice, if, if, if you are the oppressor, if you are the exploiter, still verse 12, you'll face my wrath. That was the agreement from back in Moses' day. And God says, verse 13, and that's where we are. Behold, I'm against you, O inhabitant of the valley and rock of the plain, says the Lord, who say, who shall come down against us or who shall enter our dwellings? God is speaking of Jerusalem here. He's doing it idiomatically. He's doing it poetically. Mount Zion uh, is, is, of course, Jerusalem. We're used to thinking of Jerusalem as a city on a hill, but the area that surrounds it is, is valley, and even Mount Zion is lower than the hills that surround it. So what God is saying poetically is, I'm going to bring you low. I'm going I'm to lower the mountain that you, you sit on. And where he says, rock of the plain, that's a reference to Mount Moriah where the temple was built. Flat surface, rock of the plain. It was a flat surface, and when David first purchased it, if you recall, it was a threshing floor. And that's why it was chosen by Solomon for for the temple. It was an ideal construction site. But God is saying, again, poetically, idiomatically, yeah, once again, it's going to be a threshing floor. It's going to be the place where I judge you. Verse 14, I will punish you according to the fruit of your doings, says the Lord. I'll kindle a fire in its forest, and it shall devour all things around us. Forest is another idiom. It could refer to the temple or to the king's palace or both, because both were constructed largely out of cedar from the forests of Lebanon. Now chapter 22, it's time warp. Zedekiah was the last king of Judah, and after that, we have collected Jeremiah's words to his predecessors. He's doing kind of a flashback, continuing in the vein, I think, in which the chapter 21 ended, continuing in this retrospective sort of, a, sort of a vein. He didn't say these things in this order, but I think that Jeremiah or his scribe Baruch assembled them in this order, Hey, here's how we got here. These are the things that Jeremiah said and preached on the way to getting to 586 B.C. Let's talk about how we got here. Chapter 22. Thus says the Lord, go down to the house of the king of Judah, and there speak this word, and say, hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, you who sit on the throne of David, you and your servants and the people who enter these gates." So this isn't addressed to a specific king that we know of it's addressed to the house of David in general. So this is potentially among Josiah's I'm sorry Jeremiah's earliest prophecy maybe in the time of Josiah. <coughs> Josiah the last good king this could be a warning to Josiah and those who would follow him. Uh, Verse 3, thus says the Lord, execute judgment and righteousness and deliver the plunder down of the hands of the oppressor. That same sort of exhortation that we just read in chapter 21. Do no wrong and do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless or the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if indeed you do this thing, then shall enter the gates of this house riding on horses and in chariots, accompanied by servants and people, kings who sit on the throne of David." If you take care of the widow, the stranger, or the orphan, we won't have a problem. But if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, says the Lord, because there's nothing higher to swear by, that this house shall become a desolation. <clears throat> Familiar message. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience uh, bring, brings judgment. <clears throat> For thus says the Lord to the house of the kings of Judah, You're Gilead to me, the head of Lebanon, I love you. Yet I'll surely make you a wilderness, cities which are not inhabited. I'll prepare destroyers against you, everyone with his weapons. They shall cut down your choice cedars and cast them into the fire. That same idea of forest as a way of referring to the temple or the palace or both because the choicest woods were, were used in those structures. David, 2 Samuel 7, I think it's verse 2, refers to his palace as a house of cedar. One wing of Solomon's palace was called the Forest of Lebanon. So so the intent is clear. God's warning is clear. And the results are clear. The cause and effect is is unmistakable. Verse 8, many nations will pass by this city and everyone will say to his neighbor, why has the Lord done so to this great city? And they'll answer, because they've forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshiped other gods and served them. Jerusalem will be reduced to a smoldering ash heap. Now, having spoken to the kings of Judah in general, potentially again in the days of Josiah, when revival had, you know, when it was possible for revival to continue, where there was cause for optimism, if they had kept going the way that Josiah was leading them, everything would have been fine. Starting in verse ten, we we track the swift downward plunge. Verse ten, the the, the New King James clusters it with the verses that came before. I think it pretty clearly belongs with the verses that come later. Weep not for the dead, nor bemoan him. Weep bitterly for him who goes away, for he shall return no more, nor see his native country. For thus says the Lord concerning Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who reigned instead of Josiah, his father, who went from this place, he shall not return here anymore, but he shall die in the place where they've led him captive, and he shall see this land no more. This is Jehoahaz. Shalom is another name for Jehoahaz. Chosen by the people of Judah after Josiah dies in battle. Lasts three months before Pharaoh Necho II pulls him down and sends him into exile in Egypt, where he eventually dies. He dies, verse 12, without returning to Judah. 2 Chronicles 36, 2 Kings 23 have the details. Next set of prophecies for the next king, after Jehoahaz is deposed, Pharaoh Necho puts another son of Josiah on the throne, Jehoiakim, from 609 to 598, like we talked about earlier. Biblical and extra-biblical sources agree this is a thoroughly wicked guy. And and Jeremiah agrees. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice, who uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him nothing for his work, who says, I'll build myself a wide house with spacious chambers and cut out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. When we were talking right before Christmas, we did a a Sunday and we talked about biblical archaeology, and this was one of the things that we talked about. In the mid-20th century, archaeologists found his palace, where the Bible describes, constructed as the Bible describes, and constructed, Jeremiah just said, with slave labor from the Jewish people, which Jeremiah criticizes. Shall you reign because you enclose yourself in cedar? Is, is that what kings do? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness, Josiah? And it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. He was just with them. And it was well. Was this not knowing me, says the Lord? Yet your eyes and heart are for nothing but your covetousness, for shedding innocent blood and practicing oppression and violence. Without coming out and saying it, God just compared Jehoiakim to Manasseh who's his only real competition for worst king of Judah. The the two of them are neck and neck for the most evil to to ever reign over Judah. And and God is saying, look how you're similar. They began with covetousness that spilled into injustice and ended up with him shedding innocent blood. So verse 18, judgment is pronounced. Verse 18, thus says the Lord God concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, Saying, Alas, my brother, or alas, my sister, they shall not lament for him. Saying, Alas, master, or alas, his glory. He shall be buried with the burial of a donkey, dragged and cast out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Now, people who go hunting for inconsistencies grab this one because that's a little bit different than we read in 2 Kings 24. 2 Kings 24 just says he rested with his fathers. It doesn't say anything about being dragged behind a donkey outside the walls of Jerusalem, which would be tantamount to to him being accursed. To to die and be unburied was was to be cursed. So there are those who say, oh, there's an inconsistency. We can't trust your Bible. Well, hang on. That's an argument from silence, right? It doesn't say in 2 Kings 24 whether or not he was buried. It just said... He rested with his fathers. And usually, not always, but usually, it does say something to the effect of he was buried, he was entombed. So it's possible that he wasn't. It's possible that his body was mistreated after death. It's also possible, and a lot of scholars are inclined to believe, that his body was entombed the way that king's bodies usually were, good or evil. But after Nebuchadnezzar entered Jerusalem, he said, find me the bones of the guy who started this rebellion. You know, normally, a conquering king would execute the, the rebel leader. Rebel leader's already dead. What's the next best thing? Find me his bones and we'll desecrate his body. So there, there's a few ways to reconcile is the, is the point. But verse 20, Jeremiah hits pause. He interrupts his whole diatribe against the kings of Judah after Josiah, and he speaks to Jerusalem. He's speaking to the people again. And he says, Go up to Lebanon and cry out, and lift up your voice in Bashan. Cry from Abraham, for all your lovers are destroyed. All your lovers are destroyed. Compare scripture with scripture. Hosea helps us out here. Lovers in this context means political allies. Hosea 8 verses 9 and 10 are the the parallel passage. Judgment is coming. Judgment is certain. It's happening because you wouldn't listen. I spoke to you in your prosperity, verse 21, but you said I will not hear. This has been your manner from your youth. You've always been like this. You didn't obey my voice. Instead of listening to God, they're listening to their neighbors. They're listening to nations like Egypt who tried to convince Judah, hey, you can escape God's wrath through human alliances. You don't have to repent. You just have to have the right friends which is always the voice of the enemy in our lives. You don't have to listen to God. You don't have to obey him. You just have to make the right moves. God says, no, not so much. The wind shall eat up all your rulers, verse 22, and your lovers shall go into captivity. Egypt, it's not going to fare any better for them than for you. Surely then you'll be ashamed and humiliated for all your wickedness. O inhabitant of Lebanon, making your nest in the cedars, how gracious will you be when pangs come upon you like the pain of a woman in labor. And a few of you just sat up and said, that could be a dual fulfillment. And I agree, no reason why not. When we read about a woman in labor, that that idiom is, is often attached to the tribulation. And what kicks off the tribulation? Israel, again, not learning from her history, entering into an alliance with her neighbors to avoid escaping judgment. So I don't have any problem thinking that there might be a dual fulfillment there. Finally, Jehiachin finally, because he's the next to last before Zedekiah, and we already talked about Zedekiah. Verse 24, I'm just going to read it. As I live, says the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, another name for Jehoiachin, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off, and I'd give you into the hands of those who seek your life, and into the hands of those whose face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the hand of the Chaldeans, so I'll cast you out and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. But to the land which they desire to return, there shall be no return. Is this man Caniah a despised, broken idol, a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out? He and his descendants are cast into a land which they do not know. O oh, earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who will not prosper in his days; for none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the rule of David. I'm sorry, sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. I'm going fast because we're going to come back to that last handful of verses next week, because that last verse, last verse thirty, is incredibly provocative, right? God just pronounced a blood curse on the descendants of Jehoiachin. What are the implications of that? It certainly would seem to have implications. How can all the prophecies about a king from the line of David sitting on the throne forever be fulfilled if there's a blood curse on Jehoiachin's descendants? How can God bring forth a Messiah that he has said will be from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David? And the answer, as, as, as many of you know, is found in the genealogies of Matthew and Luke. So we're going to we're going to go out for a little walk next week. We'll start here at the end of chapter 22 and we'll lateral over to the genealogies because it's 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 incredibly incredibly precious what we find there. But as we as we close tonight, I want to scroll back Slightly. Lots of history, and we covered it really fast. Names, dates, rise, fall, deaths, successors, ashes, prophecies. But there's a really important insight I want to leave us on. A really important statement, several statements, in fact, about God and the character of God and our relationship with God. Last Sunday, we we were in Ephesians, and in Ephesians, we reached back to Jeremiah 17 for a little color, for a little texture, for a little amplification of, of what we were talking about. Tonight, I want to do it in the other direction. You don't have to turn there, but this weekend, we're going to be in Ephesians 4, where Paul exhorts us to walk worthy of the calling with which we're called, with all lowliness and gentleness with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Walk, in other words, in the character of Christ. Walk in the character of God. And I think it's so important that we remember that and that we spend time meditating on that. And we'll spend some time on Sunday talking about that because it's become fashionable in some circles to to imagine a testosterone-driven Jesus A macho messiah who flips tables at every opportunity, kicking names and taking butts. A a pastor that I was was getting ready to think that I liked a couple years ago. I, I was following him online and I was really appreciating some things that he had to say lost me when he talked about some people opposing something or other, and, and he said, if they show up at our church, they're going to get stomped. I don't get that. I don't get how you defend that biblically. And, and again, we'll talk about this on Sunday, but, but here in chapter 22, verse 16, God sets the table for us on a Wednesday night. He, he's preparing us for what he has for us on Sunday, and I love it when God does this. Speaking of Josiah... He says, he judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was, well, was this not knowing me? Josiah defended the poor and needy. He used his authority to to prevent exploitation, to, to lift up the oppressed, which was what he was supposed to do as a king serving in God's government. Go back up to to, verse 3, chapter 22, verse 3. Thus says the Lord, execute judgment and righteousness, and deliver the plundered out of the hands of the oppressor. Do no wrong and do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, or the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. The law of Moses required that. The law of Moses, again and again, demands compassion especially, not only, but especially for the stranger and the widow and the orphan. We see it in Exodus, we see it in Leviticus, we see it in Deuteronomy. Why? Why such an emphasis? Because it's the character of God. God is merciful, and he's just, and he's kind, and we cannot lose that even in chapters where where God is pronouncing judgment. Why is God pronouncing judgment? because the leaders that were raised up under him misrepresented him. Josiah, go back to verse 16, Josiah practiced mercy. He pursued justice. He exercised kindness. Why? Verse 16, God uses a really provocative phrase. He says, was this not knowing me? Does this mean that Josiah knew God? Does it mean that Josiah wanted to know God? The Hebrew allows for both, and I think that it is both. And I think that that's incredibly important as we exercise judge uh, 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 compassion and mercy, as, as we as we do the Micah the Micah six eight thing. He's shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. As we do that, we honor God, we, we manifest God, and we also draw close to God. We walk humbly, we walk in justice, we show mercy because we know God and in doing those things, we know God better. God draws close to us and we draw close to him. What differentiated the last good king of Judah from those who came after? That. What differentiates us from those who claim the name of Christ only to let their actions sully the name of Christ? What differentiates us from, from those who make the world not want to have anything to do with so called evangelicals? It's that. It's mercy, it's humility, it's justice. It's, 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 it's the difference between knowing and laying hold of his heart and manifesting his heart versus n- using his name to excuse or defend the worst expressions, the worst impulses of our hearts. Covetousness, oppression, violence. We'll talk more about it on Sunday. Lord, thank you that in the midst of judgment, you not only remember mercy, but you're teaching mercy. Teach us mercy, Lord, and humility and compassion. Teach us your character. Reveal your heart. You've you've placed your spirit in us. You've given us a new heart, your heart. Lord, teach us what it is to walk in the Spirit, to surrender to that heart, to live out that heart. And in doing so, to magnify your name and your character to the world.